Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. My name is Justin Gottlieb. I'm one of the pastors here, and is, uh, as always on Sundays, it's a great privilege to get to gather as the people of God with you. So thank you for being here, and it's a great privilege to get to open up the Bible and, and to hear from God, from His Word, and to consider what all that means for us. Uh, but as we start, I'm going to read a quote that's not from the Bible. You'll pre- uh, quickly know that, um, and it goes like this, people say I'm the best boss. They go, we've never worked in a place like this. You're hilarious, and you get the best out of us. And then imagine this is a coffee mug that says world's best boss. Um, I think that pretty much sums it up. I found it at Spencer Gifts. (laughs) This quotation from Michael Scott occurs moments into the pilot of the office. And the better part of the show's next decade is spent showing how untrue the statement really is. Right? Um, I won't even begin to list the ways that his words and actions disprove uh, this view of himself, except for one. Michael actually ran over one of his employees with his car. Right? So, so there we go. Whether you're a fan of The Office or not, there's a great likelihood that you have some familiarity uh, with the character of Michael Scott. And you know that he is decidedly not the world's best boss by any standard. Yet he believes that he is and verbalizes that belief on camera for a documentary that will be on TV. And we can laugh at the absurdity of the character, many of us do, and we laugh at the lack of self-awareness that Michael has. And it's very funny on a TV show, it really is. And it's also really good to laugh. It's very good to laugh. But Michael's character is also very, very sad. And I say this because he desperately wants to be seen as great. He desperately wants to be seen as deserving of accolade. He wants to be important. Right? He wants to be valuable. And Michael wants to feel those things. He doesn't just want to be them, he wants to feel them. He wants that so bad that he actually purchases a mass-produced coffee mug that says world's best boss on it from Spencer's gift. Follow all the steps it has to happen here. He purchases that for himself, takes it to the office, and uses it, right? There's a lot there. Michael wants to be the best. He wants to be great. He wants to be important. And the thing is, he's not alone. See, I want to be great too. And I want to feel great, and I want to feel important, and I want to preach a great sermon today. I want to pray great prayers that get answered in great ways. Right? I want you to know that I'm a good pastor that responds promptly. Right? So I usually keep my inbox at zero and hardly ever have those, those disgusting red badges on my phone that say that I, haven't, that I haven't responded to something or paid attention to something. The exception is if I'm playing golf and then you're on your own. But, but I want us to play in a bunch of churches too. Right? And I want to be great and important and there to be undeniable proof of such. Now, as I say that, we realize how ridiculous that is. Totally and completely ridiculous. But if we're all being honest, 
we want to be great too, right? We want affirmation. We want position. We want to be valued, right? And we want to have enough, and we want to be enough, whatever enough means, right? We want that. We want to be the greatest blank and fill in that blank with whatever it is for you, right? We want to be the greatest mom or the greatest dad or the greatest spouse or the greatest nurse or the greatest CEO, right? Or the greatest partner or the greatest teacher or student or whatever. The list goes on and on, right? We want to be the greatest and that's right and good if it's about us stewarding the gifts God has given us for his glory and for the good of others. But so often, you and I being the greatest isn't about the good of others. It's about others knowing that we're good, right? It's about us being valuable and us being enough. So we work hard, we sleep little, and we make sure people know that we started early and ended late, and we run constantly to make sure that we're the greatest, have the greatest, and we really like it when other folks know. We especially like it when we know that they know that we are great. And you see, I may not go to Spencer's Gifts to buy the coffee mug for myself, but if Amazon could prime me one by Tuesday, and my other mugs were all still in the dish rack, I just might use it. And if you saw it on that Zoom call, you saw me drinking from it, and you thought he's the world's greatest blank, then I wouldn't be mad, right? I wouldn't be mad about that. And this is the catch of it all. We don't want to look like we try so hard to be great. Right? That, would be, that would be too much, right? We'd never do what Michael Scott does, but we also, if we're honest, understand him a bit. We want to be and feel that important, that valuable, that crucial. And this isn't something new. And here's how I know it's not something new, because we have verse 46 of chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to see the disciples behaving similarly. So let's flip over there. And let's remember, this was about 2,000 years ago. All right. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. That's right. So our passage actually begins with the disciples arguing about who is the greatest. And this is a pretty amazing situation because it's not like the disciples are exactly the brightest, most high-performing folks around. Right? We're talking about tax collectors and fishermen who still haven't understood who Jesus is, even though they are constantly with him. Right? They, they don't get it. They're constantly hearing his teaching and seeing his miracles. All right? They actually see him heal people. Like They don't have to go to YouTube and watch it. They actually like saw it. Right? They did. They saw it. Right? They stand on a boat with him as Jesus calms a storm that they're scared is going to capsize the boat. Again, they didn't have to go looking for that on the internet. It was right there. They lived this. They are there when the audible voice of God proclaims, this is the Son of God. They're there for all this. All right, all of this, but they keep falling asleep when he tells them to stay awake and pray. 
Right? So these, these are the folks we're, we're talking about here. But they're arguing about which of them was the greatest. And, and just before that, like we pick up here today, um, Jesus had told his disciples in verse 44, quote, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now in verse 45, Luke is helping us out, and he says, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. Right? And they didn't understand yet, and no matter how many times Jesus had said that he was heading towards the cross, they didn't seem to understand that he was headed towards death. They don't seem to get it. And so because of all this, you can see it's, a, it's more than a bit ironic that they're now arguing over which disciple is the greatest. Jesus has actually left his throne in heaven to come and die. And he's told them this now, over and over, and now they're here arguing amongst themselves as to which of them is the greatest. Like, look at me, look how great I am. Right? And I think we can all agree they're not a bunch of overachievers. So Jesus has come to serve the disciples with death on the cross, and they're arguing about their own importance. They're arguing about which one of them, of, them, of this 12, is, is worthy, is deserving of most honor and prestige and value. They're essentially arguing over who gets the world's greatest disciple sticker for the back of their donkey. Except none of them are good at being a disciple, and they probably don't have a donkey. All right? So, I don't have anything else for you guys. Like, <laughs> um, No, that's good. So, it's likely that the reason they're feeling important, and this is what we can't miss, jokes aside, um, it's likely that the reason they feel important is because they're actually close to Jesus. And this is pretty scary. Here's why. The very proximity to Jesus that should be driving them to humility is actually driving their self-importance. Right? This is the disciples. The very thing, the very thing that should be driving their humility, namely their proximity to Jesus, their closeness to Jesus, their seeing of all these things, this stuff that should bring about humility in them drives their self-importance. And even worse, as we see this, this struggle for importance go on. It brings division and argument amongst them, right? Because if someone is the greatest, then it means that a bunch of others are not, right? So we've got this argument going on. Look at verse 47 with me. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Now, Jesus knows the reasoning of their hearts, and he knows that it's not merely hypothetical um, thoughts or questions that are driving their argument. Right? It's their hearts. There's something broken inside of their hearts, broken inside the disciples, and their actions right now are being fueled by that brokenness. And as is most often the case, their foolishness doesn't just need a right answer. It needs a, a heart answer. Right? It's not their minds that are messing this up. It's their hearts, and Jesus knows it. So he doesn't simply give them a command to stop it, which... I mean, it would seem fair if he was just like, guys, stop it. And, but he knows that's not going to do it. So he takes the child, places him by his side, which is a, a bit confusing on first read, unless it's just me. But, but we got to ask, why does Jesus involve a child? Why does he involve a child? 
Jesus involves this child because this child was in every way the opposite of great. He was the opposite of great. Which makes for the perfect illustration. See, in this culture, in this day, this child would not have been old enough to be, even be taught the law of God. It would be pointless for a teacher like Jesus to be spending time with this child. A waste, even. And plus, plus that, this kid wasn't old enough to work. Right? He didn't have a job or a YouTube channel. This child was simply not great. He was the lowest and the least. The very definition of not great. Yet Jesus takes this child and places him next to him in a position of honor. So normally for this kid to be invited into this context, likely would have been for him to wash someone's feet or some other lowly task. But Jesus is welcoming him. He's welcoming the one who has no status into his presence, and he's elevating him. Right? This child has nothing to offer But Jesus is treating him with the greatest dignity and the greatest respect. And this child who normally would have been the one offering honor is now receiving honor. And he's getting it from Jesus. It's wild. And Jesus said to them, verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So now finally, like we've gone, we're two-thirds of the way through this this story, the verses we're dealing with today, and Jesus hasn't spoken yet, but now he does. And when he speaks, he points, he, he makes this point to the disciples. Not that they should be like the child. Right? That's not the point. Jesus' point is that rather than arguing about who is the greatest, his disciples ought to be identifying with and welcoming the least into the kingdom. Right? That's what Jesus is doing with this child. That's what he involves this child. And it's a total and complete reversal from the way that the world views greatness. And that's true of, of Jesus' day and our own. Right? Generally, the greatest are ushered away from the least right? to, to gated, luxurious surroundings and private experiences where the riffraff are kept away or at least a safe distance away. And honor and respect and value is bestowed on those seen as great. right? Those who have status, whether social or professional or financial. right? It's, it's bestowed on those that have something to offer. And meanwhile, the least get... Well, the least get the least. But not with Jesus. Jesus takes the child and puts him beside him. And now he explains that the disciples are not to seek status, but are to receive those who have no status. See, Jesus' disciples are not to seek status, but to receive those who have no status. And this is in fact so crucial to following Jesus that Jesus says that receiving the child in his name is actually receiving Jesus. 
It's actually receiving Jesus. And that the one who receives Jesus is actually receiving the Father. God the Father. We could say it really concisely like this. Receiving the least is receiving God. Receiving the least is receiving God. One commentator says it this way. The simplest act of kindness begins a chain reaction that reaches heaven itself. For whatever is done to the little and the least is done to Jesus. And whatever is done to Jesus is done to God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that in your interactions with the least of these and the weakest of these, can you imagine that today, that tomorrow, that this week, in your home, on your street, on your way to work or school, with friends or with strangers, with those who have no standing or have nothing to offer you, that your receiving of the least can start a chain reaction that reaches heaven? Can you imagine that? Because that's the reality that Jesus is, is getting at here. See, Jesus cares so much about this, about our receiving the least of these in his name, that, that he says that receiving and honoring the least in this world is receiving and honoring him. See, here's one way this plays out in the life of the church. If we believe Jesus on this, then we'll realize that the great ones at Seven Mile Road are not the pastors, are not the deacons, are not the staff, or, or other leaders. Right? The great folks at Seven Mile Road and anywhere are the ones who receive the least of these, that receive children in the name of Jesus. The ones who welcome the little ones with such honor, right? The great ones are the ones who prepare for and pray for and teach and hand out snacks to and clean up after our little, little ones. The great ones are the ones who make our little children feel loved every week when we gather for worship. This is why it's such a privilege to serve downstairs. I hate that they don't get to hear this, but um, don't tell them. Right? We don't want them to get puffed up, right? But um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Definitely tell them. Please, in fact, affirm them today. Right? This is why it's such a privilege to serve downstairs, though. And it's also why we pray. You guys notice every week we pray by name for those that are serving downstairs. Because Jesus says the ones who receive the little ones are great. They're receiving Jesus when they receive his little kids every week. And we all have that opportunity. Now, before we end today, I think the passage really has, gets at it. But before we end today, I want to point out that there's a way to hear Jesus' words that he says here in his illustration here. And for this non-status seeking to end up being its own weight or its own status seeking. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's a way to hear this and be like, now nah, I got to do blank. Right? You could hear all this and feel like, oh man, now I've got to come up with a criteria about who is the least of these, and then I got to Google where that person is at, and then find them and honor them, of course, in Jesus' name. And I'm already busy 
and tired, but I want to be the greatest. And Jesus says, I have to do this in order to be that. So you could hear Jesus' words and everything I've just said as law, and it add burden, and it feel like you have one more thing to do for Jesus. But to hear that is to miss the actual good news. Here's the good news for all of us today. Jesus became the least, so the least can become great. Here's what I mean. Jesus is God, but he emptied himself and became man because you and I are the least of these. Right? That's the hook here, really, that we're the child. We're the child. You and I are the least of these, but he loves us anyway, and not with some weak, sentimental, passing love. No, 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 no. We were dead in sin. Dead in sin. Separated from God in due eternal wrath, unable to help ourselves or make our way back to God. But Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did all that when we had nothing to bring to the table. Nothing. Not a single thing. Not a single thing. Yet Jesus became the least. Even to death on the cross. For you and for me so that we can be received into the kingdom. We deserve not a second of the kingdom. Not a second. Yet Jesus has brought us in. And catch this. He didn't bring us into the kingdom as workers or to offer hospitality. He brings us in as sons and daughters of God. That's what he does. And so now you and I have all things in him. Right? So this isn't burden. Right? We're free. We're free. Here's what I mean. We don't have to try to earn anything. Our status as God's own is secure in Jesus. So we don't have to receive the least of these to get approval. You're approved because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Jesus got that for you already. And we don't have to be scared about what it's going to cost us to obey him. We're actually 100% free to forget about ourselves, to forget about self-protection, to forget about self-preservation, and receive the least of these because Jesus has done so first. I could not want more than I have in Jesus. I could not be more secure than I am in Jesus. I could not be more valued than I am in Jesus. And the same is true for you. Same is true for you. It truly is. Seven Mile Road. We're free to receive, to honor, to welcome the least of these in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus has already received and welcomed us 
into his kingdom. Let's believe him on that.